Well, we've come to the end. We've come to the end. The Lord has seen fit to get us through. As long as I get through this sermon today, we'll get through the, the books of Samuel. And so this will be our last sermon in this series. So we'll be looking at 2 Samuel, chapters 23 and 24. That The final two chapters, chapters 23 and 24 of 2 Samuel. And so this, this, again, I'll remind you that chapters 21 through 24 are a bit of an add-on at the end, a summary looking back um, overview of David's rule and reign as king. And this, this morning, these last two chapters, we're going to see David as the ideal king. So, so I think our, 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 our impulse should be, wow, he, he, he was God's gift to Israel. He's the ideal king who eventually, so, so we'll see his sin in chapter 24, but eventually he is the king, the anointed king of Israel who trusts the Lord. And we're going to see that, that David's rule was good for those underneath it. His rule was secure. It was supported by, by these faithful, mighty men that we're going to meet. And his rule was marked, yes, it was marked with sin, but more than that, it was marked by humility. David, at the end of the day, sought the good of his people. He sought to honor the Lord as the king. And so we're going to see that David's rule was good for his people. Now, if, if we get to the end of chapter 24, and, and like one of my children, I won't mention names, but who asks, well, so David dies. This is the last sermon in Samuel. David dies. Well, he doesn't die here. If, if you want to find out on your own, you can continue your reading in, in 1 Kings because there is, is the end of David's life and what happens next. And so that's a great, if, if you're looking for a, a place to read in your personal Bible reading, turn right over and, and begin 1 Kings this week. Because David doesn't die here, but, but the, the, the book of First and Second Samuel does come to an end. Well, let's, as we begin, I'm going to read just the first seven verses of chapter 23 at the outset. And then, we'll, then we'll look at the outline, and, and then we'll, we'll, just, we'll look at it. So, so follow along. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7 of chapter 23. Now, these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like the thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Let, let's pray as we, as we begin. Father, I pray that, that this morning, as, as we have done so intentionally through this service, I pray that, that in these next moments, through these chapters that we're going to look at this morning, help us to see Christ. Help us to behold the mysteries of a Savior who's been crucified for us, who also reigns over us now, ascended into heaven. So I pray that, that the ways that you intend for us to see Christ from the life of David will be clear to us. Help, help us to see the goodness of our Savior, our King, whose rule and reign are for our good. And help us, help us to be citizens in his kingdom in response to this. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. 
Well, there, there's three sections that we'll work through. So the first section, the king's last words, which is what I just read, verses 1 through 7 of chapter 23. And then secondly, we'll look at the king's mighty men. So that, that's the second major portion of chapter 23. And then finally, all of chapter 24 will be the king's sinful census or senseless census. But we'll see King David making a, ordering a census that is, is wrong. So that'll be the, the final section. Let's begin with, with the, the verses we just read, verses 1 through 7, the king's last words. So as we begin the, these first four verses, notice that they're the last words of David, the, the last words of the anointed, the God of Jacob, so the sweet psalmist of Israel. These are the final words, and final words are important words. But notice also, they're David's words, but more than David's words, they're also the Lord's words. It's an oracle of David. It, it's something that David received that he's speaking David's oracle, verse 2, is that the Spirit of the Lord speaks by him. So at the end of the day, these aren't only David's words. These are the words of the Lord. That's why verse 3, the Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. The God of Israel has spoken. And so what does the Lord speak through David here in these first four verses? Notice that there's two things that, that are mentioned directly here, verse, verses 3 and 4. First, notice the benefit of the king who rules justly and fears God. These are that language when one rules justly, which is ruling in the fear of God, when one leads God's people in the fear of God, he dawns on them, I take that as the people under his rule, he dawns on them like morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. It's, it's refreshing, it's energizing, it's good. David's reminding Israel that the anointed king who reigns over them, when he reigns in justice, ruling in the fear of God, it's good for them. It's a blessing to his people. And not only that, but, but also notice down in verse 6 and 7, in addition to the, the king being a blessing to his subjects, a righteous king is also one who brings justice. So, that, so those verses 6 and 7, right? the, the, the worthless man is is one who's thrown away like thorns. You can't grab them or else you'll be hurt. So, so the righteous king deals with them as one deals with thorns, like with iron tools and, and burned with fire. So the, the righteous king who rules in the fear of God is a blessing to, to those who, who he rules, but he's also a threat to the worthless men. And that's, that's good for God to establish a king who deals with worthless men, who eliminates them. And so it's a benefit for God's people to have this king, this God-fearing king over them. But second, notice the security of the house that the Lord has established. So here, in the, the words of the Lord, they're more specifically, they're related to David. It's not really general principles. Look there at verse 5. Does not my house, David's talking about my house, does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me, again David, an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and all my desire? So David, in these last words, is recognizing that his house, his dynasty, was certain because of the eternal or the everlasting covenant that the Lord had made with him in his house. The Lord had told him, your house is going to be secure. You're going to have a son on the throne forever. And so David's saying, it's secure. It's going to endure Will not he cause it to prosper if he's made this great promise to me regarding my house? And so David recognizes that this enduring dynasty was part of the everlasting covenant that the Lord had made with him. All the way back in chapter 7 of, of 2 Samuel. And David recognizes that his house will be secure forever 
and that his prosperity and his salvation will be sure. And so, so at the end of the day, when, when David dies, he can die in hope knowing this is going to go on long after me because the Lord said so. And so the, the two points of application that I, I would simply make for us immediately in chapter 23 is first that his rule is for our good. I mean, I think we see that when, when a God-ordained king rules righteously, it's good for the people. We'll say more about this later, but, but we should simply recognize that having a king over us, ruling over us, that's, that's what we were created for. Did you know that? You were created to, to serve underneath a ruler. Some of you are thinking, no, no, not me. I know people like, yeah, I can't work for anyone. I'm my own boss. Well, you were created to, to be subservient to God. You were created to serve him, to, 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 to be a, under his rule. We're not created to be autonomous individuals. And though we mess things up right at the beginning, and I say we, we, we have a corporate responsibility, though we messed it up and though we, humanity, are an impossible people to rule, in Christ, God has established a rule and a reign that is good for us. A rule and a reign that is beneficial for us. God has given us a king that we don't deserve, but that we get because he's a kind God. He's merciful. And so I'd simply say that submitting to the Lord Jesus, submitting to his rule, is the best thing that you could do for yourself. Contrary to popular opinion, contrary to what your sin nature would scream to you, submitting to the Lord is the best thing that you could do. If you're, not here, and you're, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to leave here thinking, why am I not submitted to the Lord Jesus Christ? Why haven't I repented of my sins and put myself under his rule? Under his rule, you can, you can be safe and secure, and, and he cares for you. It's not like there's this foreign power who, who has their own self-interest. His rule is for your best interest. And we turn, we can't rule ourselves. And so if you're here not a Christian, I would, I would urge you, turn to Christ and, and submit to him. It's for your good. It's not always easy, but it's for your good. And the second point of application I would, I would make is that his kingdom is forever. The, the, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of God that, that we're talking about here, it's, it's forever. I wonder if you're familiar with these words, let goods and kindreds go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill, his truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. That those are, those are, that's the last verse, the, the last verse of a mighty fortress is our God, a, a classic hymn. But, but that's the truth. His kingdom is forever. This is a truth that, that ought to give the Christian hope. There's a kingdom that if your faith is in Jesus, if you're part of that kingdom, you're part of a kingdom that will last forever. And there's no way that the kingdom of David's son, Jesus, will not endure forever. It is impossible. His kingdom will be, will last forever. And so for God's people... It's good news that God's, God's kingdom is a final, permanent, lasting reality. That, that's hope-giving. This world is not our final resting place. And so, so really practical, on, on Tuesday night, maybe into Wednesday early morning, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be tempted to despair. Depending on the results of, of these midterm elections, a lot of people will be discouraged. And depending on how invested you are, a lot may be on the verge of despair. The sky is falling type despair. 
And this text ought to inform that temptation to despair. There's a kingdom coming that is not aligned with a political party. And that kingdom's going to far outlast any Republican or Democratic or independent platform. And so don't get lost in the here and now. There's a kingdom that's going to last forever. That's good news for us. Well, well, let's look second. The second, the king's mighty men, verses 8 through 39. So as we transition from these last words of David, where we, we turn to this, this history, a hall of fame, if you will, of David's mighty men. And these men, as you'll see, they're, they're exploits of heroism and valor. They're unmatched. These are, these are the navy seals of ancient Israel. In fact, as you read about what they did, they're, they're the level above the navy seals, if that's even possible. Right, so, so just follow along. I'm, I'm going to pick up reading in verse 8. I'm just going to read through verse 17, but just listen to, to this list, to these mighty men of David. Verse 8, these are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshebasheth, a Tachyamanite, he was chief of the three, and he wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him stood... Next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they de- defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Aji, the heretic. Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, there were, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his hand in the midst of, took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Agilum, where a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephraim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and they carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord, and he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this, shall I drink the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. And so we have, this is just a, a few things that the mighty men did. And so you get the idea, David's army, right, it was filled with these types of men. So his military success that we've been reading about all throughout, it comes on the back of these mighty men. And so we see just in those verses these, these military heroes that are divided into two groups. There's the three, and then there's the thirty. So those are the two groups. The three, which are, they are far above anyone else, but they have the thirty who are way above anyone else also, except for the three. And so you have Josheb, Bashabeth, this chief of the three, who with one spear took out 800 men. I mean, do you know 800 men? I mean, can you, I mean look around you. Maybe we have 100 people here. Right? And the most powerful among us with one spear could not take out all 800. I mean, all 100, much less 800. And so, so this is one, this one man with, with one spear takes out 800. And Eleazar and Shema, there's these other two. These, these were the three 
They're of, of fame in Israel. And so they're recorded here to be remembered. And then we get a list of, of some of the exploits of the 30. So there's those, there's those three who hear their king say, oh, I want to I drink from the, from the well of Bethlehem. Now, he, he may have been thirsty. Right? He's on the run. So he's probably thirsty. But he probably also means, I just want to be back at Bethlehem. And I wish I could just have some of that water because that means that the Philistines aren't there and that I'm not on the run. And so he just, he just that's, that's like a comment to the wind. Oh, man, I'm so thirsty. I wish I had some of that Bethlehem well water. So the three of the 30, they, they hear this request and they say, okay, that's what the king wants. That's what we're going to go do. So they go break through the camp of the Philistines. They get the water. They break back through and take it to David. But surprisingly, shockingly, David wouldn't drink it. Instead, he pours it out. But, but notice, he doesn't just pour it out. He pours it out to the Lord. Do you notice that? He pours it out to the Lord, which at first glance, on first view, it seems strange, insulting. Why, why would the king, that's so rude. They risked their life for that water. You just dump it out. How rude, King David. But listen to, listen to how one commentator explains. I mean, I think this, this makes sense. Listen to what he says. He says, the gift of water acquired at such a great peril represented something so precious that David considered himself unworthy to drink it. In fact, because of the risk that the three took, the Bethlehem water symbolized, symbolized the blood of the men who had literally faced death in order to get it. Accordingly, David poured it out before the Lord, giving it there in the cave as an offering to the Lord. He continues, this act finds a rough parallel, he doesn't say exact parallel, but rough parallel in the unnamed woman's extravagant decanting of perfume on Jesus' body. It's an act of worship, a wasteful, we might say, act of worship. And so this this is a worshipful act when David pours out the water. So in in doing that, he's not insulting the men. It's not an act of waste, it's an act of worship. Instead of selfishly consuming water brought back at such great risk, David honors these men even more by offering it to the Lord. I'm not gonna, this isn't worthy. These lips aren't, aren't worthy to touch this gift, this precious water. So this is for the Lord and for the Lord only. So, so he's honoring these men in their sacrifice. And then verses 24 through 39, we have a whole list of names. The rest of the 30. Named for the sake of honor. Their, their names, think about their, their, their lineage, decades and generations after the yeah, I'm a, I'm a great-great-grandson of, of one of the 30. Yeah, right, right there in 2 Samuel 24. Think about the honor for remembrance. So Asahel and Elhanan, Shema, Elika, Helez, Ira, Abiezar, Mebunai, Zalman, Maharai, Heleb, Ittai, Beniah, Hittai, Abialban, Azmeth, Asmaveth, Elihabah, Jonathan, Shema, Ahiam, Eliphelet, Eliam, Hezro, Pa'arai, Egal, Bani, Zelek, Naharai, Ira, Gareb, and Uriah, the Hittite. This list of names, every name mentioned, stands for someone that excelled in fighting and serving the king, the anointed one. When he was on the run and didn't have the throne, they were with him. When he was ruling on the throne, they were with him. Right, so, so it wasn't the, the, the office of king, it was David that they were loyal to. They were faithful to the Lord. They were faithful to the Lord's anointed. And so in their faithfulness to David, we see a faithfulness not only to David, but to the Lord himself. These men were the men that the Lord worked through. 
And so when we learn that, that the Lord established David and the kingdom of Israel under David's rule, that didn't happen apart from these men. And so these men, it, it can be said accurate, accurately that they fought for the kingdom of God in this world. And so these men stood forth as examples of faithfulness and loyalty. They stuck with David through it all. And so briefly, application-wise, let us learn from the example of faithfulness. Not the example of, of killing 800 men with one spear, but, but just faithfulness to the Lord's anointed one. For these men, their allegiance to David was the only thing that mattered. Or at least in comparison, it's the only thing that mattered. They had families. Remember they had families when they came back to Ziklag? All their family and kids were gone. So they had families, yet they gave their life for David. Their faithfulness to the Lord's anointed. And while I don't pr propose that everyone quit their jobs, come out of retirement, pursue full-time ministry or missionary work, that's not, not what I'm saying. I do think that we ought to simply look at our lives and ask ourselves, are we, am I loyal to the Lord? How's my loyalty expressed in my day-to-day -day life? Or second, how's it on, how's on, how, how is my loyalty on display? So first, am I loyal to the Lord, and then how's it on display? So I have to learn from the example of these faithful men, because like these mighty men, our loyalty to our king ought to take precedence over everything else. Well, then finally, we, we come to the, the final section Chapter 24, all, the, all 25 verses of chapter 24. And as we come to 24, this is the conclusion. Conclusion of these books. And so let, let me begin. It's divided into three sections, this last chapter. So I'm just going to read verses 1 through 9 at the beginning. So, so follow along as I read. Verse 1 of chapter 24. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them. That is Israel saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with them, Go, go through all the tribes of Israel from Dan to Beersheba and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord turn? Why does my lord the king delight in this thing? But the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. So Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. They crossed the Jordan. They began from Eror, from the city that is in the middle of the valley, towards Gad and on to Jazar. And so they go on and on and on. In verse 9, jump down to verse 9. And Joab gave the sum of the numbering of the people to the king. In Israel there were 800,000 valiant men who drew the sword. And the men of Judah were 500,000. And so these verses begin, verse 1, that the Lord's anger is kindled against Israel. So it, though it's not explicitly stated, what is the sin of Israel that, that the Lord's angry about? We know that Israel is guilty of some sin against the Lord, and the Lord is angry. His anger is kindled. And so it reads that the Lord incited David against the Israelites, saying, Go number Israel and Judah. In other words, the Lord incites David to take this census. Do you see that? The Lord incited David. Now, as, as we read on, we're going to see this census is wrong. It's sinful. And so the first issue that we're faced with immediately is why does God incite David to sin? Or maybe a better question, does God incite David to sin? It says he incited David to do this thing. And then this thing that he does, we find out in verse 10, is wrong. And so does God incite David to sin? And most basically, I'd say yes. The Lord incited David to sin, most basically. And I'd, I'd affirm that while just as matter-of-factly asserting that the Lord does so without being in sin, without wrong, being wrong, without sinning. 
So the Lord can incite David to sin without being guilty of sin. You see? Make perfect sense? I mean, this is, this is James 1. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God can't be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. And so however you want to, you, however you want to wrap your mind around what's going on, the Lord is not wrong by inciting or causing David to sin. Now, that answer is sufficient for me. I don't need any more explanation, but I realize that, that you may not be like me. So another strain of evidence here is that the First Chronicles account of this same event. So if you remember, we've gone sometimes back to, to First Chronicles, which parallels in a lot of instances this whole timeline. And so you can write down First Chronicles 21, because there in verse 1, the same census is recounted. And there, the chronicler says, then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Makes it a little different, doesn't it? There it says Satan incited David to number Israel. So there it is Satan who incites David to take the census, which then allows us to reconcile the Lord's role in this whole ordeal. Not so much different from the case of Job. Do you remember? Who caused Job's suffering? Well, at the end of the day, we have to say it was the Lord. He could have stopped it, but he told Satan, go, just don't kill him. So Satan does it, but the Lord is also playing a part in it. And I think that's here the case as well. I think it's best to understand the census as the Lord through Satan inciting David against Israel by commanding him to take a census. But the second issue, so that's the first issue, the second issue Taking a census in and of itself isn't wrong, so why is this census wrong? And in fact, the censuses were commanded. And so it's not that the census is wrong, it's, it's this specific census that's wrong. And so maybe, maybe you've been taught, and I think it's still probably most likely, that David's motivation behind the census is where the issue lies. And so, so it's all guesswork, it doesn't say why, but David knows in verse 10 that, that he's guilty and he's wrong and he repents of it. So what's his motivation? Well, maybe it's his pride Maybe he wants a number in order to puff himself up. Maybe, maybe this, this number, it's for self-aggrandizement. So I just want to know how powerful I am. Perhaps he wanted a number in order to boast more accurately. Don't mess with me. This is how many men I have. Maybe it's pride. Or, or maybe another motivation issue would be, it could be his lack of faith. Perhaps he commanded a census because he doesn't believe that God's going to do what he said he's going to do. Maybe he's doubting God's faithfulness. Perhaps he wants to take a census in order to prove to himself, how many do I have? I've got to know so that I can be sure that God's going to do what he said, because if we're too low, then God's not going to be able to do it. I've got to know. So maybe, maybe this, this lack of faith, the kind of walking by sight instead of faith. A third reason that that's not so much motivation, but, but some people put forward the idea that, that in the census, David is failing to follow specific laws. So, so apparently when there's a military census that's issued, there are specific taxes involved that must be collected. And, and since there's no mis- mention of David doing that here, maybe it's wrong because he issues the census, but he doesn't follow the, the fine print and, and collect taxes from the people. Like I said, we don't know for sure, but in light of Joab's response in verse 3, it seems like David's doubting God's faithfulness. He says, may, may the Lord increase all that you see. Well, may he see you expand it, but we don't have to count this. Regardless, this is, this is the census that David issues. So there in verse 10, David's heart s- struck him after he had, he had in- issued the census. They'd come back with the numbers. His heart struck him after he'd numbered the people. 
He's guilty. He repents. He recognizes that it's wrong. He says to the Lord, I've sinned greatly in doing this. Lord, would you take away my iniquity? Now, that's David's response there in verses 10 through 17. Again, showing sensitivity, humility to his sin. He leads the way in repentance. And if you remember before, Nathan came to him and had to tell him a story. And then he was convicted. He said, oh my God, what have I done? Right? So there's the prophet had to tell him. Here there's no prophet telling him he's wrong. He's convicted and acknowledges his wrong and repents of his sin. And so the prophet does eventually come. A prophet named Gad comes to David. And the consequence of this sin is, is he, he's going to have to choose a punishment. So the prophet Gad comes. He says, okay, you've got three choices. You can choose three years of famine. You can choose three months of being pursued by your enemies. Or you can choose three days of pestilence or a plague. Right? So, so each option, there's three years, three months, three days. Easy, three days. That's the shortest, right? Well, each instance, it's increasing in severity. So either famine for three years or running away being pursued by your enemy for three months or a outright plague war on you for three days. And so David's choice, he hears the three and he says, give us three days pestilence, which he describes as falling into the hand of the Lord. So if you notice of all the options, that's the only one that doesn't require a human intermediary. So, so if they have famine for three years, they've got to go to someone else and say, hey, provide for us food. We're out of food. Or if they're running away from their enemies, they're, they're at the hands of their enemies who are pursuing them. And so he says, let us fall into the hands of the Lord. And so he chooses the only option that is only them and the Lord. No other parties involved. And he says, because the Lord's merciful. Now he wants to fall into his hands. And so for three days, the Lord inflicted a plague on Israel and 70,000 Israelites died. At which point the Lord relents from this calamity. Okay, so, so it's over. The plague is over. And so there, there's this, this payment for sin. Here's the punishment, the consequence. And it's over. But verses 18 through 25 happen on what seemed to be the last day of the plague. Okay, so, so at the end of verse 25, we see that the plague was averted. So, so this takes place on the last day of the plague. So we have this interaction. Let, let me read there in verse 18. And Gad came that day to David, and he said to him, Go up, raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. So David went up at Gad's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming down towards him. And Aruna went out and he paid homage to the king with his face to the ground. And Aruna said, Why has my lord the king come to his servant? David said, To buy the threshing floor from you in order to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be averted from the people. The Lord told me to do this. That's what I'm coming to do. Then Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seems good to him. Here are the oxen for the burnt offering, the threshing sledges, and the yokes of the oxen for the wood. All this, O king, Aruna gives to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. In other words, take it all. Take it all. Don't kill me. I'm going to give you whatever you want. But the king said, No, but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that costs me nothing. So David brought the threshing floor, bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord responded to the plea for the land and the plague was averted. And so in this final interaction between David and Aruna, David, following the Lord's command, goes to where the prophet told him. And he purchases this property and there's negotiations and David buys the threshing floor, and he built an altar to the Lord, and, and there he makes offerings to the Lord. And the Lord responded to the plea for the land, 
and the plague was averted. And so we have the end, kind of an anticlimactic end to the books of Samuel. But as we come to the end, we have this ideal king who's making offerings that were costly to himself, who's making a sacrifice in order to avert the anger of the Lord from Israel. And so I don't think it ends this way without purpose. This is the king making offerings that's going to avert the anger of the Lord. And so the final application as we close is simply this. I think David witnesses to Jesus. In making these sacrifices for his people, David foreshadowed the actions of Jesus, the ultimate son of David, who also gave sacrificially on a hill near Jerusalem for his people, so that an even more tragic plague might be stopped. David's climactic sacrifice involved the use of wood and blood on a hill outside the city. So did Jesus. David's sacrifice stopped a physical plague that had taken the lives of many Israelites. By Jesus' sacrifice, by his wounds, new Israel likewise has been healed because he himself bore sins, their sins in his body. And so David, since he averted the anger of the Lord that was incited by David himself, right, the king had to do it. So, so David's the cause for this plague, remember? He was, he, he was the one who issued the census, and then there's the plague in response to the census. So David says, well, let me do something about it. He was responsible somewhat for the plague. Well, that's not the case with Jesus, is it? Nothing about the human plague, the, the, the state of sin, nothing about fallen humanity and rebellion against God was his doing. He had no obligation to come and offer himself to make a sacrifice to avert the anger of the Lord. He wasn't responsible yet. And here's the good news. He took on responsibility. He freely took on the guilt. He made it his responsibility and then he fixed it. In his death on the cross. And so as we close, we see David is the ideal king. David is the type But David is only a shadow. Jesus is the substance. David's greater son, Jesus is the real thing. And so as we we conclude this, this look at the life of this ideal king, let us never forget the far greater David, the one who came to be our forever king, the one whose rule over us is for our good, far greater than any Israelite ever experienced under this David. Let's pray as we close.